The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Is it mad that the world burning is not in our, like, top three concerns? You thought bad news was done, but I'm back with more. And Alice Sneddon's Bad News Saves the World. I finally address the climate crisis and explore why no one cares. Watch it on thespinoff.co.nz. I can see the anxiety (laughs) starting to emit from you. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Long time ago... Back in 1987, when I was 20 and young and pretty stupid, I was a mad libertarian, a free market freak. One of these people who felt really energised by what was going on in the New Zealand economy and the global economy at the time, which was that businesses were being unleashed to make things better, to get the boring, slow, painful presence of government out of the way and to clean up the world, make it much more efficient and stronger and we'd all get richer. That was great, I thought. And I remember a movie I went to in 1987, Wall Street. And if you haven't seen it, it's a cracker. Oliver Stone wrote it. It's all about capitalism. And in particular, the type of capitalism that was really taking off at the time, shareholder-driven capitalism, where the primacy the people in charge of companies, particularly fast-growing global multinational companies, were not workers or the government or any sort of social need. It was the clarity and the strength of shareholders. And that if only big companies just delivered shareholder value, then we'd all be better off. Gordon Gecko, you might remember in that famous scene at the Teldale paper AGM, said that, for the want of a better word, greed was good. Greed works, he said. Greed clarifies, cuts through and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. What Gordon Gecko was saying and paraphrasing was that companies needed to focus only on shareholder value and to really make companies much more efficient and stronger and compete with all of those countries in the rest of the world, like Japan and Germany, who seem to be rising up to take over America in the mid-80s. In fact, Gordon Gecko was reflecting a big movement at the time that started with an essay from Milton Friedman, the famous Chicago School economist, in which he said that companies that were run in the pure interest of the shareholder purely for profit, purely for dividends, purely to make the company more value, were actually more efficient. And that this was the right way to run the economy. That we'd all get richer, that these companies would be much cleaner, more innovative, and just do the right thing. That this was effectively a moral crusade to make the economy better. This was Friedman's idea. That having shareholders dominate the purpose and the performance of companies and allowing CEOs to do what they want, not to be bullied or told what to do by unions or regulators, but to really 
let loose and make capitalism work because capitalism was the best. And you could tell by 1989, remember, America had beaten the Soviet Union and proven that history had ended, <laughs> that the capitalists had won. And it was all very sort of thrilling at the time. I remember in 1987, walking out of that movie, obviously, Gordon Gecko was the uh, villain of the piece, but there was a part of me that sort of admired his spirit. Um, Got to remember, too, that, and spoiler alert, um, he gets prosecuted for insider trading at the end. And in fact, Oliver Stone, whose father was a stockbroker, a real old school stockbroker from the 1930s, who um, lamented at the time in the 50s and 60s how unpopular business was and how uh, business people were seen as, you know, not much better than a used car salesman or a journalist back in the uh, 50s, 60s and 70s. And in fact, Stone's idea was for a movie to essentially celebrate business and business people, but to do it in a way which reinforced that capitalism could be good if it just did the right thing. And you might recall that the good stockbroker in Wall Street, played by Hal Holbrook, who mentored Charlie Sheen, was the one who wanted to restrain capitalism and stop it from being a bunch of uh, sociopaths essentially doing everything for themselves in the short term and destroying the society around them. So we're at a point now, post the global financial crisis and post this horrible pandemic, where 40 years on from that revolution sparked by Milton Friedman and reflected by Gordon Gecko, we're at a point where many people are starting to see through the um, apparent clothing of this emperor and realise actually that the moral uh, rightness of this drive for shareholder-driven capitalism has evaporated. When it became clear that companies used their connections to government, their power, to ensure that they were bailed out, that they weren't held accountable for fraud, and that they as the rich, were made much, much richer by the interventions of the government. And we can see that here in New Zealand too. Over the last year, uh, many of New Zealand's biggest corporates have made fantastic profits and done very well, in part because the economy bounced back so strongly, but at least in part because they took a lot of money from the government and didn't pay it back. And then you've got the 60% of the population who own homes who are now $400 billion richer because of government intervention. And those who don't have assets uh, are much worse off and didn't get an awful lot of help from the state, which in theory is there to help us all and not just to make some people richer. I thought I'd talk to one of the people who have documented these changes over the year the most closely in the most interesting way. Luigi Zingales is an economist actually from the Chicago School, which spawned Milton Friedman. And he's written a couple of great books on how capitalism needs to be regulated and fettered to make itself sustainable. Because the fundamental flaw of capitalism is that when it's unleashed to its most extreme, it eats itself. It effectively piles up the surpluses into a corner, into the hands of the very few, and the masses eventually revolt. And capitalism that is sustainable has to moderate those natural tendencies to pile up wealth into the corner. 
You need capitalism to be regulated to avoid creating monopolies and super profits. It means now that we have a bunch of people in large-scale capitalism who are starting to push for a more conscious version of capitalism, which focuses on the environment, on social issues and on governance, so that we don't see this sort of out-of-control, self-destructive and incredibly powerful version of capitalism that has developed in the wake of that Milton Friedman essay and in the wake of that movie, uh, Wall Street, which seemed to capture it all. So here's Professor Luigi Zingales, who is a professor of finance at the University of Chicago. He's talking about how much more profit has gone to shareholders as a share of the economy and what's happening with CEO pay. So first of all, the level of uh, the compensation of CEO skyrocketed, not only in nominal terms, but use any denominator you want, uh, with one exception I will tell you in a second, and you will see the stuff skyrocketing, okay? Uh, But also the the viability and how much is linked to performance has skyrocketed. And uh, uh, there was paper performance back in the 70s, but was not in any way at the level that is today. When I say any denominator, I think there is an exception that is if you look at uh, uh, superstar in every da- in every area. So uh, whether you look at uh, um, athletes, you look at lawyers, you look at writers, you look at superstars. Um, so we do live in a world uh, that actually a. a very mislaid colleague of mine, Sherwin Rosen, defined as a superstar economy. And uh, in my book that now is uh, in my book, Capitalism for the People, that is now almost 10 years old, but I look at, uh, for example, the compensation of uh, golf players. And I use golf players because my natural inclination as an Italian would be to look at soccer. Uh, But I know Americans uh, are still uh, digesting this uh, uh, sport that we call football Uh, (laughs) and they call soccer. Uh, And so I I went and but but the answer would be the same if you look at uh, soccer, actually. Uh, But the thing that is unbelievable is you look at uh, the price paid for the winner and then the fifth uh, ranked and the 45th rank in the Augusta Master Tournament, which is the most prestigious golf tournament in the United States. And you see that uh, that value rises, but very slowly until the beginning of the 80s. And then at the beginning of the 80s, skyrocket, okay? And not only the, the price skyrocket at the top, also, the difference between the first price and the fourth price, and the difference between the first price and the 45th price, and, uh, and then you wonder why that's the case. And I think that this is where Shelving Rosen is very useful. It is a superstar economy that is helped tremendously by uh, globalization, and, and of course, uh, uh, in particular, globalization of TV, but also of taste. So, uh, what I learn. Uh, because I knew nothing about golf, what I learned for this book is that uh, in 1948, the Augusta Master Tournament was something that uh, uh, very few people were aware of. You could walk the day of and get a ticket and watch it. And actually, in 1948, the winner was not even a professional, was somebody that was doing that amateurly. Uh, Now, move to today, 
today, you have to put your name in a wait list that uh, lasts for I don't know how many years to be randomly picked to get at the Augusta tournament. Even the, um, uh, the rehearsal have a wait list to, to watch. And people in Japan and possibly in New Zealand, they wake up in the middle of the night to follow what happened in, in, the, in the tournament. So I think that uh, compensation of superstars have increased in every arena. Uh, I was one, once uh, presenting in front of uh, Paul Krugman, and I said, it's also true for newspaper writers. Uh, and he didn't like that, but it is true. And it says, in, in the old days, people in New Zealand or Italy would not read the New York Times. Today, from New Zealand to, to Japan, uh, to the United States, to Latin America, everybody reads the New York Times. And so Paul Krugman is a, a worldwide superstar. And while he doesn't disclose his compensation for that, I'm sure that uh, rolls uh, at a similar pace as the one of athletes. And uh, I don't know whether the same pace of CEO, but I suspect at a similar pace. You mentioned that capitalism thrives on competition and the idea is that um, we have a competitive market and that uh, in theory um, any excess profits are competed away by uh, people looking for opportunities. But increasingly with the growth of the internet, we see the growth of network monopolies. How has that growth of the internet changed that profit share and that superstar economy? So, the growth in the superstar economy and uh, in the profit share predates the internet explosion. However, the internet explosion made it only worse. Uh, so it's not, uh, we cannot blame internet for that, but uh, it not only didn't make things better, it made things significantly worse. And in fact, I have uh, uh, advocated very uh, aggressively for a more serious antitrust. And uh, some of uh, the activity that the center, uh, the University of Chicago I direct, the Stiegler Center, um, has done is, is to actually analyze to what extent these businesses are unusual by historical standards and to what extent they do need to be reined in in uh, some ways that uh, might be different in terms of uh, Instruments, but the principle is the same principle that was introduced more than 100 years ago by the Sherman Act that uh, you don't want uh, companies to become uh, excessively dominant in an industry because uh, capitalists work only when there is competition. And in fact, uh, I was shocked, but uh, uh, Biden, President Biden, in a recent executive order, said a sentence that could have come uh, from uh, one of my courses or one of my pieces that say that basically, I, I quote by memory, but capitalism without competition is a rigged game and, uh, and uh, doesn't work. And I think that uh, uh, I completely agree with that. So there is this problem. We can see a much higher profit share than there was and, you know, real um, unhappiness at the bottom of the pile, if you like. Also, unhappiness at a government level that some of these companies and uh, executives are now so powerful um, across borders, uh, able to advocate for their interests within democracy in a, in a fairly robust way. Uh, what are we seeing in terms of a backlash against this in a political sense in the you know Western democracies? It's interesting because I think that uh, there are 
various uh, reactions. I think that uh, at the highest level in the United States, there is a uh, small but growing group of uh, in mostly intellectuals who are pushing for more aggressive uh, use of antitrust law. Um, and, uh, and the Biden administration so far seems to have uh, paid attention to this group, which uh, uh, by and large is still a minority group, but is, is, is vocal and, and influential. So I think that that's one way. Uh, and in my view is the more constructive and positive way to, to react to that. Um, however, there is a, a more, if you want, uh, uh, is instinctive or knee-jerk reactions, which is to reject uh, the game altogether. Uh, there is this story that I use in my uh, book, Capitalism for the People. So this goes back many years when my son and daughter were small, and they were playing Monopoly together. Uh, my son is a little bit older than my daughter, so at the time he could read and write perfectly, and she was still uh, struggling. And uh, the game will inevitably end up uh, in a fight with my daughter screaming. <laughs> and, uh, and so I will intervene regularly. And uh, the story was that uh, my daughter felt my son was cheating, and my son, with the rules in his hands, was saying, no, no, I follow the rules rigorously. And I think that uh, both were true. The problem was that my son was only remembering the rules in his favor. So he was selectively <laughs> enforcing the rules to his advantage. Why do I use this, this story? Because I think that uh, it reminds me very much of what uh, uh, we observe in a lot of Western democracies today, is that uh, people like my daughter, who at the time, now she's super sophisticated, but at the time she wasn't, uh, they are not really able to explain what is wrong, but they are smart enough to understand something is deeply wrong. And so they are not able to vocalize in a coherent alternative platform. They just scream, okay? And so I see the populist scream arising all over Western, uh, the Western world as a kind of a, uh, similar uh, of what my daughter was doing in front of a Monopoly game. Uh, in a, you, you observe that the game is rigged. You don't know exactly why. You don't know exactly how to fix it. You even don't feel you have the power to fix it. And so the only thing you have is the power to scream uh, and get attention. And that's exactly what my daughter was doing. And that's exactly what a lot of people uh, in, around the world are doing. Do you think, though, that um, democracy can respond in a more constructive way over the long run and solve this issue in a way that the same way it did perhaps in the early 1900s when you had first Teddy Roosevelt and then FDR um, bring in the trust busting, you know, invent the uh, social welfare system in America, the same in Europe with the invention of the social welfare system, particularly after the Second World War. My impression that there was a deal done after the Second World War where 
capitalists realised they'd probably pushed it too far, things were in crisis, and they needed to ensure there was a strong middle class who were being paid proper wages, uh, who could be consumers, who could be educated. And there was a settlement, if you like, where there was a a welfare net which protected a lot of people and the, the capitalists knew that they shouldn't push too hard, otherwise there'd be a backlash. Now, we've seen the growth of the profit share in the economy, the rise of the superstar compensation, and then effectively the use of lobbying by large companies to avoid any uh, retracement back towards something like that settlement seen in the 40s, 50s and 60s. Do you think that democracy can solve this problem by itself or is the screaming going to... Uh, drown it all out and either nothing changes or you get some sort of shift to non-democracy? It's a very interesting question. In the book I wrote 10 years ago, I was more optimistic uh, that democracy could do it, uh, particularly in the United States, because as you mentioned, uh, it has already been done in the United States. There is a record of successful uh, change. Um, I have become less optimistic over time uh, for two reasons. One is uh, I actually read a, a, a super interesting book uh, that is called The Great Leveler uh, by Walter Scheidel that describes how inequality was reduced historically. And uh, it's not pretty. In a sense, uh, generally, inequality is reduced only through actually pandemics. This was... Uh, uh, written before COVID, but uh, was preceded in that by pandemic. Uh, the uh, great, the, the Black Plague in 3048 uh, was really a great level in Europe. Um, by wars, uh, uh, major wars, and in general by revolutions. I think that uh, you don't see very effective uh, changes in, in, this, uh, in this story. And... Um, and so the, the pact that you described after World War II was a pact done in a world that was much more equal than it is today. And so it's much easier to go along uh, with that uh, when everybody uh, is in the same boat, literally. And also there was a sense, speaking of boat, I think part was the war, part, uh, I don't know, the, the time, but uh, there was more of a sense of a common uh, country. Um, I recently saw a beautiful play uh, by Arthur Miller. It's called All My Sons uh, that is based on on a true story of uh, a kid who reports her father because her father was selling defective uh, parts for airplanes to the uh, U.S. Air Force and some pilots had died as a result. And so the daughter reports the father because her sense of duty to the nation is above her sense of family. And, uh, and so after watching that play, I said, how many people would do that today here? Think about who, who, how many people would report their father or their mother if they pollute a river and kill a lot of people in the pollution of a river or, or stuff like that. I, I don't think that is the same level of cohesion and, and um, sense of uh, we are a community and, and we are to help each other 
uh, one of the few positive things about major wars like World War II is that they create this sense of community. We're all on the same boat, we're on the same side, and we need to support. I think that that was a, a very important element. Last but not least, and this is connects to the, the uh, big tech and so on and so forth, is the role played by media. I think that uh, uh, the beginning of the progressive era in the United States starts with uh, what is called uh, the muckraking period. These are uh, uh, magazines who do what we now call investigative journalism. I, and they, Ida Tabell is my, my hero. Yes, yeah, Ida, absolutely. Uh, and, uh, and they do it in for-profit magazines. And uh, why? Because uh, the introduction of uh, uh, better technologies, both for the production of papers and for their printing, made newspaper accessible to a, a, a wide public. So you had a profitable way to inform people in a large fraction. And, uh, and so I will not stop to uh, repeat how crucial is the media technology for the functioning of a well-organized democracy. And uh, the problem we have today is that uh, we basically don't have that anymore because you have either majorly subsidized diffusion of information and uh, it's subsidized by uh, collecting data on people uh, and having a surveillance economy. Um, and, uh, and of course, uh, the people who uh, control that distribution information, they don't want a major source of change. So the, my, the, the hypothetical question I ask people is that, uh, it's not only against Facebook, but also Google, uh, the way Google rank, ranks news has major impact on the way people vote. And there is even control evidence, etc., that if you are an undecided voter and I present you first all the negative news about uh, Hillary Clinton, I'm uh, more likely to vote for Trump and vice versa. Okay? Now, I want to be very clear because I don't want to give uh, uh, crazy speculation. I'm not saying Google has ever manipulated any election. However, there is no doubt as the capability of doing so. And uh, in economics, we know that the threat is good enough to get outcomes, right? So if I am a member of Congress, and unless I am uh, either Elizabeth Warren uh, in Massachusetts, they are so Democrats that you need to be crazy not to be elected as a Democrat. Or I'm Alexander Ocasio-Cortez in Bronx, where in, it's, it, it's impossible to be unseated. Uh, but if I am a, a regular congressman or senator, do I really want to fight a campaign against Google or Facebook when much of my advertising campaign, even the campaign financing, is through that. And I give you a very simple example. Gmail is now filtering email, right? And, uh, and then they have to decide which campaign solicitation end up in the spam, which one don't. And uh, surprise, surprise, the one of Elizabeth Warren always end up in the spam. And <laughs> prove me that this is done on purpose. 
Uh, <laughs> so, so you're right. Those powerful interests are certainly lobbying to protect their interests inside democracy and the algorithms are uncontrolled. Could corporate and particularly pension fund interests use the power they have? Because there's, there's not that many powerful interests that these big multinationals respect, but a sovereign wealth fund or a big shareholder is one of them. Given that democracy might not work, could the pension funds actually force the change on boards and these big companies where democracies can't? I don't think that they can fully replace democracy. However, I think that uh, it is a tool that must be used to try to uh, restore the power of democracy. Uh, at the end of the day, and, and connecting with the uh, the uh, Milton Friedman ebook that uh, I published last year, uh, one of the things that uh, uh, Friedman does not consider, uh, which is actually a, a major shortcoming, is the fact that uh, uh, companies not only uh, not follow the rules of the game, but they manipulate the rules of the game. And so uh, when Friedman says uh, you should maximize profits following the rule of the game, uh, he ignores the fact that companies can shape, by and large, the rules of the game. And so then the question is, uh, if I have to maximize profits and I can change the rule of the game, should I really, uh, as a sort of a, a shareholder delegate, go and change the rules to my advantage, to the disadvantage of my own shareholders? And this is where, with uh, my colleague Oliver Hart, we wrote a paper in 2017. We take uh, Milton Friedman seriously. However, we make uh, one very small uh, assumption uh, and they say, look, uh, individuals care about other things besides money. Maybe not a lot, but a little. Not, maybe not all, but many. And so if I run a company, if I am a 100% owner of a company, I don't maximize profits. I maximize my utility, which is made of, uh, of course, money uh, and maybe a big chunk of money, but other things as well. And so now if we create a company, a hundred of us create a company, why that should be any different? You know, we can agree sometimes that uh, we should maximize only profits and then let each one of us do their own thing. Uh, so, for example, when it comes to charity, and that's an example that Mil Milton Friedman uses, when it comes to charity, it is indeed better to have the company maximize profits, distribute the profits as dividends, and let us allocate uh, the dividends the way we prefer. Okay? And why is because there is no comparative advantage. If I donate a dollar at a company level or at the individual level, there is no difference. So there is no comparative advantage of donations at the corporate level versus the individual level. However, in many other situations, there is a comparative advantage. So uh, think about pollution. It's much more expensive to pollute and fix the pollution than to avoid pollution to begin with. Or think about... Uh, uh, influence to the government is 
much more expensive for the shareholders to undo the distortions done at the corporate level by uh, uh, their own representatives than for the company to avoid distorting to begin with. And so when there is this uh, synergy at the corporate level, then what managers should do is not to maximize shareholders' value, but maximize shareholders' welfare, which is a not only the monetary component, but also the rest. Now, of course, this brings a very important question of how do you measure the welfare and blah, blah, etc. So I'm not saying that this is easy. However, it brings back an important lesson that uh, if I am a fund manager, I don't have fiduciary duty to maximize only your financial return. I need to consider also your well-being altogether. And because I might not know what your well-being is, we can actually let the investors pick. So what we are advocating is to have a lot of uh, Vanguard uh, uh, S&P 500 funds. And one is called the Green Fund. The other is called uh, Anti-Lobby Fund. And the third is Green and and Anti-Lobby Fund. So uh, I invest my money into a fund that uh, at every shareholders meeting will vote uh, for proposition that favor a green economy or that uh, vote in favor of uh, uh, more disclosure or less uh, intervention in the, in the political arena and so on and so forth. So this is a way in which shareholders can, investors can direct uh, mutual fund managers uh, into doing something that is more uh, productive for society at large. And uh, I want to be very clear here. I don't think this is going to be a substitute to government intervention uh, because if we want to reduce, for example, CO2 emissions and stuff like that, this voluntary system will way underperform vis-a-vis what uh, a tax will do. Uh, However, I see this as a complement a necessary compliment because the government is not doing very well to begin with. So <laughs> why don't we at least start working on that metric? And particularly because the first uh, arena where I will fight is on this political influence cooperation. Uh, and if shareholders can limit the political influence of cooperation on certain topics, maybe some uh, other reform at the government level will take place. So I think that that's a a complementary approach, not a substitute. And after the break, I'll talk with Luigi Zingales about how democracy might be able to put capitalism back in some sort of sustainable shackles. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's Kiwi Bank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, with his prediction on what we can expect from the housing market and interest rates for 2024. We've seen quite a correction in housing across the country. So house prices fell from the lofty levels that we saw in 2021. The Reserve Bank has pushed house prices down by design and by lifting interest rates to very eye-watering levels. I think the housing market has found a bottom and I think we'll see house prices rising over 2024 and into 25, 26. The housing market will be better balanced. 
We have seen a, a surge in migrants, which is adding demand to the housing market. And I think we'll see house prices naturally lift on the back of that surge in migration and uh, hopefully an easing in interest rates later on. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Skinny are helping you show how smart you are with the 1Q Quiz, an all-new, super-challenging and super-quick daily quiz built by The Spin-Off. Every Monday, Skinny are giving you the chance to prove you're smart with the Skinny Extra Credit question. Get it right and you'll get the chance to score yourself some Skinny Extra mobile credit so you can text, call or even video call your group chat and gloat about how big your brain is. T's and C's apply. Do you think there might be any innovation in accounting or in corporate structures like B Corps which could help solve this problem. I couldn't help but notice that the father of accounting and bookkeeping, and I'll pronounce this badly, I'm afraid, uh, Luca Pacioli? Yeah, you pronounce it very well, yes. Yeah, uh, was the guy who came up with double-entry bookkeeping, which is still, you know, the dominant form in which we keep the score for corporates. Are there new accounting systems, new auditing systems, B corporations, being used or formed that might solve some of these problems? I, I really appreciate uh, this question, first of all, because I'm a big fan of Fra Luca Pacioli, even if, uh, to be fair, uh, he did not invent it. He simply wrote <laughs> it down first. And uh, uh, apparently, the double entry bookkeeping was used by many merchants in Italy. Mm, yeah. And in fact, he describes it as uh, bookkeeping the Venetian way because <laughs> the Venetian merchant was using that. Uh, but it is indeed true that the book he published in, in 1494 was literally a bestseller for the time and was translated <laughs> into uh, French. First of all, was written in Italian and not in English, which is very important. Uh, sorry, not in Latin, not in, in, in Italian, not in Latin, which was very important uh, because merchants did not speak Latin very well, uh, and, and, but it reached the, the customers. So that was a, a, a very uh, good uh, marketing plot, but it was quickly translated into French, Dutch, and English and became uh, uh, the, the standard. So I think that uh, uh, the infrastructure is very important, but I am a little bit skeptical uh, that this by itself could change things. So, so first of all, more disclosure is useful because that helps society pressure. However, remember the reason why the double entry good keeping was so useful is because it made it easier for the investors to make sure that the managers were not stealing from them. So there was a very important conflict of interest reason why that was the case. I don't see, and, and maybe uh, if you have enough investors that care about the environment, this might be uh, the, the case, but I don't see the investors being so aggressive in saying, you have to give us that accounting that, that would change. And when it comes to big corporations, I'm not so sure that there's such a, a revolutionary change in, in the sense that uh, 
the, the stash of B corporations simply say that you might look at other interests besides that of the shareholders, which is more like uh, I give uh, the managers a free pass to say, if you, I don't want to do that, I will invent some other constituency, because there is always a constituency that is hurt. I will invent some other constituency that justify that why I don't do it. So, um, number one, I don't think it's, it's so tight. And number two, I have not seen a flourishing of adoption. So this idea had been introduced roughly 10 years ago. And if you look at the number of companies that have pursued this avenue, it's not that big. And most of them adopted for marketing reasons. So Patagonia has structured this as a big corporation. Why? Because they want to be green and cool and, uh, and sell more sweaters as a result of that. So it is a marketing effort. It's not a governance issue. Um, and uh, uh, I ask uh, a, a few entrepreneurs, even the one that are very uh, socially minded, why they don't adopt that. And uh, they say, you know, it doesn't buy us very much. They prefer, paradoxically, they prefer to have uh, impact loans because impact loans, they get a clearly lower rate in exchange of fulfilling some social obligations. And so that is a contract that is very explicit. There is a clear quid pro quo on both sides. And so I think that that is, to me, a, a richer avenue. And, and I'm not against uh, the idea of uh, uh, finding alternatives. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you follow, but in England, uh, the British Academy has like pushed this uh, purpose corporation and this and that. And um, I am not so sure that it's so easy to define uh, purpose in a way that uh, makes manager being accountable to that. Uh, but I have nothing against that. I think that uh, the beauty of capitalism, uh, the way at least I intend it, is to be a free enterprise system. It's not a free corporation system, a free enterprise system in which you have different uh, ways to organize cooperation. And there are clearly non-for-profits. I, I work for a non-for-profit, so I, I cannot uh, uh, disdain non-for-profits. And, and uh, they do perform a, a very valuable role. And uh, I think we're not exploring enough uh, intermediate forms. And uh, uh, maybe the B corporation is, is, is a good uh, intermediate form. I am not that uh, keen on that particular form. But I, number one, I'm open to be convinced. And number two, uh, I'm even more open to explore alternatives that might fit the need of the moment more. Just to find the solutions to the world's problems... Uh, <laughs> I'd love to make you a benevolent dictator of you know, the world's capitalist systems, uh, assuming that democracy is unlikely at the moment to solve this problem by itself. What would you do to make capitalism sustainable if you happen to control those levers? Um, first of all, I will not take the job because uh, <laughs> generally dictators end up uh, in a pretty bad uh, uh, outcome. So um, I'm, not, I'm not very fond of that. But... Uh, um, if I were the advisor of the dictator, I think that is a more likely scenario, um, hopefully of, of a uh, dutifully elected uh, prime minister, whatever. Um, I think that uh, the first area of intervention would be in uh, influence that uh, cooperation have of government 
and also governmental cooperation. I, I am uh, very uh, fearful of uh, some agreements between large corporations and governments to keep the rest of us at bay. Uh, so I think that uh, it is very important that, uh, uh, first of all, government intervention are very transparent uh, to everybody. But in this spirit, it's also very important that uh, corporations uh, limit their power and influence when it comes to the democratic game. I think that that's, uh, uh, to me, is, is the biggest distortion and is not just campaign financing. Of course, campaign financing is very important, but it's not just campaign financing. It's much, much bigger than that. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, let me actually uh, conclude on that because this is something that not enough people pay attention to, is also uh, how they impact uh, academia and not just with the funding, but with the access to data. So um, I give you the example of Uber, okay? Uber is super popular among academics. Why? Because Uber has fantastic data, the stuff that uh, we dream of, <laughs> and they're very selective in sharing their data with uh, academics who are willing to write papers that... Sure. Uh, at the end of the day, support what uh, Uber is doing and how great it is. And uh, a, a former colleague of mine wrote a paper documenting that uh, when Uber enters into a town, mm -hmm. the number of fatal accidents go up. And uh, at the beginning, you're surprised, and he was surprised as well because his initial hypothesis was that they were going down because people mm. stop uh, uh, drink and drive, right? However, what he finds is obvious after you think of it, which is the margin of substitution is not between uh, driving your car and driving an Uber. Yeah. It's yep. between driving a bus or riding a bus mm -hmm. uh, or a train and taking Uber. So Uber de facto increases the number of cars in circulation in any moment in time. Yeah, okay? that's the congestion problem that has really not been called out. Exactly. And uh, so there is, of course, an emission issue that is pretty important. But also we know that more traffic, more fatality. The, the result is actually, once you think of it, it's pretty obvious. Now, he struggled to get this paper published for two reasons. Number one, because most of the referees were very negative. And while we don't know who the referees are, the, the chances that people who work for Uber or have received data for Uber is pretty large. Okay, so now you already see that. Uh, the and second, because it is true that they don't have the perfect data because mm -hmm. the perfect data is only in the hands of Uber. However, surprise, surprise, Uber doesn't give the data to this guy. Now, it's even more interesting because they gave the data to another team of researchers who look at wage gap in Uber. And what do they find? They find that men earn 7% more than women in Uber. Why? Because apparently they drive their car faster. <laughs> and so they get more customers. However, what is embarrassing for the profession is that these authors don't ask the question, the fact you drive faster is that you are more efficient or that you kill more people along the way or create more accidents. 
right? Because in, in a case in which, in the second case, is not more efficiency, is a disaster. But surprise, surprise, they don't ask the second question. And uh, my suspicion, my thinks that uh, they don't ask because Uber does not allow them to do yeah. that. No. So as a result, academia indirectly is becoming basically the PR agency of Uber. Yeah, and that's corrosive as well. Exactly. I have so enjoyed the discussion. Thank you so much. Kakite Ano. Thank you very much, Professor. Bye bye, and it was a pleasure. Thank you very much this week to Luigi Zingales, all the way from Chicago. He's the author of Saving Capitalism from the Capitalists and also more recently, Capitalism for the People and is a great podcaster as well, an economist with his own podcast. It's called Capital Isn't, and uh, we'd like to thank him, in part because it sets us up for another podcast in the next couple of weeks about what might replace shareholder-driven capitalism, in particular B Corps, and how the big sovereign wealth funds are using their influence to uh, smooth the rough edges of capitalism. So you need to subscribe. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was When the Facts Change, a podcast on the Spinoff Podcast Network, brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.